Amen. Lord, we thank you that we can enter into the holy place. The veil's been torn. And Lord, we thank you that it was torn because of the blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We thank you that you have paid the price, that it is finished. And Lord, that we, those sinners, Father God, we've been saved by grace and we can draw near to the creator of the universe. Lord, we ask right now as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Father, I pray that each heart would be prepared to receive what you want to minister to us from your word. Lord, again, be with those who minister to our kids right now. May our children just be blessed and strengthened in their faith as well. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 15. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament on Sunday morning. I want to encourage you, if you're not coming out on Wednesdays, we go through the Old Testament on Wednesday night. This coming Wednesday, we'll be in Numbers chapter 6, so I encourage you to read ahead and just prepare for that. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. As a matter of fact, if you need it, you can absolutely take it home. It's our gift to you. We want you to be able to open up God's Word wherever and whenever. Everybody have a good holiday? Amen? Hey, you know what? We have a lot to be thankful for. Amen? First and foremost, what we have to be thankful for is the fact that our God loves us so much that He'd rather die than live without us. Amen? And that's really what Thanksgiving's all about. Great opportunity to witness to people. And I love the Christmas season for several reasons, but the main one of which is I believe it's the greatest opportunity to witness to people all year long. Because what is Christmas about? So we'll be talking more about that and giving you some opportunities and some encouragement to do that. But let's take a look at Acts 15, and we're going to continue again looking at the the first century church. And I'll tell you, when we look at the model for us as a church today, the place that we should be looking is the book of Acts. And we talked about the fact that the book of Acts refers to the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit or even the Acts of the first century church. And we saw how Jesus had ascended back into heaven, but He did not leave them alone. He sent the Holy Spirit. It says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Then in Acts chapter 2, The Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke with great boldness, and thousands of people came to know the Lord in a very short amount of time. We talked last week about the purpose of the church, which is to fulfill the Great Commission. Why does the church exist? To make disciples, to to know Jesus and to make Him known. It doesn't exist for any other reason, although there are other things that God has called us to do. The main reason we exist is to make people know and let people know about Jesus Christ. So we see that after the Holy Spirit had come upon them, they began to fulfill that great commission, but they were all staying in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, they were accused of filling the entire city with the gospel. What a great accusation. They were accused of, you guys have filled this whole city with your doctrine. Again, I've prayed that repeatedly. May that be true of Santa Cruz. May we fill Santa Cruz with the gospel. Amen? You get to Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 8, excuse me, and they're still staying in Jerusalem. Some years have passed. The Lord had told them to reach the entire known world, and they wouldn't move. So persecution came. A man by the name of Saul of Tarsus came and began to wreak havoc among the Christians. And because of fear, they were scattered throughout the known world. And God used that to promote the gospel. Persecution promotes the gospel. We often look at persecution and say, why me? And it doesn't seem fair. But we need to realize that God will use it for His glory if we will let Him. They went throughout all of Judea, and then Philip went and reached all of Samaria. And then when you get to Acts chapter 10, Peter was called to go out and reach the Gentiles. 
Because their main focus at this point had been the Jews. Most of the first century church was all Jews. The apostles were Jews. And we see that that was the main focus of the gospel. But then we get to Acts chapter 10, and again where, it's, where he, he rolled down the sheet and had all the unclean animals, and he told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, words that should never come out of our mouths, not so, Lord. You can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence. It's either yes, Lord, or he's not Lord, amen? And he said, not so, Lord, I've never touched anything that's unclean. And God was preparing his heart to not only just get rid of his dietary problems and dietary struggles with the Gentiles, but that he would open them, him up to go out and minister truth to the Gentiles. So we see the church is growing. They're reaching out to the Gentiles. In the last two weeks, we saw the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. How they went out and now, now they've reached Jerusalem, they've reached Judea, Samaria, and now they're going to go out into the uttermost parts in fulfillment of the Great Commission. And as they go out, what we talked about this last week, there was great fruit, but what else was there? Great what? Persecution. Every time, it was like right after the verse, it's saying many people believed, and then the Jews rose up. Many people believed, and then they threw them out of the city. Many people believed, and they took, they took uh, Paul outside the city and stoned him to death at Lystra. What did Paul do after he was stoned to death? The people gathered together around him. They prayed for him. He got up, and where did he go? Right back into the city. Man, you got to love it. How do you stop a guy like that? You don't. When the Holy Spirit is upon somebody in such a mighty and a powerful way, the persecution of men is not going to slow them down. It's going to encourage them. And we know from Corinthians, where Paul wrote, that during the time after he was stoned, that he was caught up into the third heaven, the Bible says. And God, what God revealed to him, he said he could share with no man. But he came down with an even greater zeal. Why? Because his focus was on eternity. And if we want to have an impact on the world around us, we need to have an eternal focus. So that brings us to chapter 15. And we see that perse what persecution has done, it stirred up the church. And we see how God's used it to promote the gospel. But what I want us to see this morning is I want us to see that the attacks can come from the outside, but they can also come from the inside. The persecution comes from the world. It's one of Satan's tactics to try to get people to dial down their faith. You know, hey, there's a potential of losing your job or catching heat or the guys I was in India with. You know, if you share your faith, they're going to be beaten. You may even lose your life. And there are those that, you know, when that persecution comes, you find out where our faith is really at. Be hot or cold, if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. You don't stay lukewarm very long when you're persecuted. You either get cold or you get hot. And persecution, in a lot of ways, can be a good thing. But we're going to see that Satan has another tactic as well, not just to attack from the outside, but also to bring division from the inside. You know, that's one of the tactics he uses even now in the church today, that the church universal, there's, there's division and there's disputing amongst Christians. And I know that breaks God's heart. Too often we're trying to promote our agenda instead of seeking God's will. And the reality is it doesn't matter which lifeboat you get there in as long as you get to shore and we're all one church, amen? And we should be praying for the other churches in Santa Cruz. And we should be praying that God would use them mightily and praying for the pastors and we should be coming together as one body. But we're going to see, and this is the title of the message today, for those of you who take notes, I, I, I've been praying all this week as I've been studying this that God would really use this message. And the title of the message is Understanding God's Grace. I believe this is one of the most misunderstood things in the church today. The struggle between, the great, between grace and the law. If you were here on Wednesday night, we saw God's desire that we be holy. He said, cast all the lepers and all those who have, have discharges and all those who have touched dead bodies out of the camp. 
And those are pictures, leprosy, a picture of outward sin that everyone can see, the discharges, the flow of blood, a sin that no one else can see, and then touching dead bodies, being impacted by the world. And he said, if those things are true, you've got to cast them out of the camp. They cannot be in my presence. And, and so often we look at that, and the Lord says, be holy for I am holy. So then we start putting the law on top of people and saying, if you don't keep all these laws, then you cannot walk with God. And I want you to see the balance to that this morning, truly understanding God's grace. Because I want you to know something. God loves you. And he loves you just the way you are right this minute. You don't have to take a bath so you can, you know, get in the shower. You know, too often we think we've got to go out and do a bunch of good work so somehow we'll be acceptable to God. You can't be good enough to be acceptable to God in and of yourself. We've become acceptable to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and no other way. And so we're going to see now that in Acts 15, understanding God's grace, we're first going to see the dispute over God's grace. Then we're going to see them defending God's grace And then finally, the decision about God's grace. Let's begin in verse 1 of Acts 15. In understanding God's grace, we're going to see the dispute that comes within the church over the grace of God. Verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these men come down from Judea. They're, They're called Judaizers. And these were men who may have even given their life. We don't know for sure. There's some dispute. But they may have even given their lives to the Lord. But their heart was that this was just now a new sect of Judaism. Okay, Jesus came, sure enough, and He died on the cross. That might be true. And maybe He is the Messiah we've been looking for. But following Him alone is not enough. You know, we've been following these Jewish laws our entire life. We're wearing the black robes and we're keeping the rules. And and this is just another step along the path, adding Jesus to the equation. We've got to keep wearing the black robes. We've got to have the wheelbarrow full of rules with heaven at the end. You know, we've got to be burdened and yoked with the law. And sadly, there's so many churches today that teach that same gospel. That you must do this and this and this and this and then maybe you'll be good enough to be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas have come back to Antioch. This is that first church, the first missionary church outside of Jerusalem. Antioch was the first place that they were called Christians. This is the the body that had sent them out on their first missionary journey. They've now come back into Antioch. And when they show up, they hear these guys have come up from Judea trying to tell them, hey... You're Gentiles, but if you want to be saved, you've got to keep the Jewish law. You've got to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. And so this this doctrine comes to them, and again, it comes from men who've come up from Jerusalem. And imagine being these, these new converts, these brand new Christians, and in come these guys with the black robes, and they've come from, you know, the mother church, in a sense, down in Jerusalem, and they show up, and they tell them, you've got to be circumcised or you can't be saved. Now, first of all, for all the young men that were there, this was really of interest, right? What? I got to do what? You know, they're sharpening their knives. You got to be circumcised or you can't be saved, you know? And these guys are sitting there listening to that, and no doubt there was confusion. They had been taught that it was Jesus Christ. They had been taught it was faith in Him alone that saved them. And so in comes somebody telling them that they're not good enough, that there's more that they must do to be saved. And I want to say something to you. That anytime we add anything to the cross, 
we are preaching another gospel. The Bible says Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Not Jesus plus keeping the law, not Jesus plus church membership, not Jesus plus belonging to the right organization or being baptized in a certain way by a certain man. Teaching like this is nothing short of blasphemy. We need to understand that when we say Jesus plus, we've missed the gospel completely. We're teaching another gospel. It says this in Galatians chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you to the, in, in grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let them be accursed. Any other gospel. These guys are turning away. When he writes the letter to Galatia, he, to the Galatians, he's encouraging them because they have been heeding and listening to yet another gospel. It also says in 2 Corinthians, I want to read something to you. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, don't turn there, I just want to read it. You can write it down, make sure your pastor's not being a heretic and he's really reading the right thing, okay? But 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 4 says this, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which we have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. It was a warning to the church at Corinth because what happens is it's too easy to to fall into the trap of thinking that there's something more that we must do. It just seems too simple and it seems too, too, too loving and too gracious that God would pay everything. But he did. He paid it all. Tetelestai. Last words on the cross. It is finished. And sadly, what happens in the cults today, the cults tell us that salvation is something that we earn. You earn it by your good works. You earn it by moral living. You earn it by knocking on doors. You earn it by, you know, flying a plane into the, tw- the Twin Towers. Right? Those guys thought they were doing something for God. How do you fall into that trap? You start to think that it's something that you earn, but salvation is a free gift. If it was something that we had to earn, it wouldn't be a gift, it'd be a paycheck. Amen? If we earned it, it would be a paycheck, but it's a free gift. And praise God that He loves us so much. Good works do not produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. And it's not faith plus works, and it's not faith or works, it's faith that works. Amen? You know, it's not faith plus works, faith plus something else. It's not faith or works. I guess it's a choice we have to make. It's by faith that the works come out in our lives. We don't do good works so that we might attain faith, but when we put our faith in the Lord, good works are going to come out of us as a natural outflowing of us being new creations in Christ. Amen? I just want to make sure when we walk out of here, we understand God's grace and His love and His mercy. Now, it might be understandable to see why some of these guys were confused. Because they've been holding on to Judaism their whole life, and all of a sudden, in came Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. But we're going to see, and praise God for Paul and Barnabas. You've got to love these guys. Because these new Christians are all sitting there, and these guys come with authority, and they say, you've got to get your act together, and then you can come to God. You've got to keep all these rules, or you will not get into heaven. 
Man, it breaks my heart. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that are under the bondage of the law, under the bondage of works. And they think, but I, you know, and they just never, they're always walking around feeling guilty and hammered and beaten down. And even their pastors and the people that, quote, disciple them at their church are just pounding on them. The reason you're struggling in your life is you didn't pray enough this morning. And you don't, you, you only knocked on doors for four hours last week. That's wimpy. Man, you really want to serve God? Show it. You know, I mean, whoa. And the sad thing is there are people out there just beating people down with the law. Do you ever see Jesus doing that? He just says, come and follow me. Just drop your nets and come and follow me. I love you guys. Come follow me. And he loved them and he served them and even washed their feet. That's the God that we serve, not someone who heaps some heavy burden on top of you that's impossible for you to keep. Look at verse 2. So these guys come in and they start preaching this to the guys, and, and, and Paul and Barnabas are there. Praise God for this divine appointment that Paul and Barnabas are there. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So Paul and Barnabas disputed with them. Paul and Barnabas didn't pull the Santa Cruz and go, dude, whatever you're into, man, right on. That's cool. I ran into a guy I played football with in college yesterday. It was a divine appointment. He lives in Oregon. I haven't seen this guy in 20-something years. We played the same position. We were pretty close. And I see him at the gas station. And I walked over and I started talking to him. And, uh, and he knew I was a Christian back then. And he found out I'm a pastor. And he goes, well, I'm kind of into my own spiritual journey. You know, and he's like, Dave, that's cool, man. Sounds like God's doing good stuff with you. But I, you know, I'm up in Oregon now, and I'm on my own journey. And I'm like, dude, that journey leads to death, man. I mean, can I just tell you, bro? I mean, this is by divine appointment that, you know, we're pumping gas next to each other. God, before the foundation of the world, put us at the same gas pump. And I just want to tell you, Pete, man, he loves you, bro. And, and that path leads to destruction. He's a loving and a gracious God. And Paul and Barnabas, when they heard this lie, didn't say, hey, whatever, man, as long as it floats your boat, that's cool, man, right on. They didn't say that. They go, hey, whoa, that's a false doctrine. You're saying that Jesus Christ isn't enough. You're saying that these guys have to do something else along with Jesus to get into heaven. That's a lie. And praise God for Paul and Barnabas that they were willing to step up. Now remember, we must stand for truth when the essentials of the, of the gospel are challenged. But may we always do it in love. Amen? May we never come across as self-righteous or holier than thou. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. And we need God's grace as much as anybody else does. And so Paul and Barnabas, and they come to the decision, let's go up to Jerusalem. Let's go up to the authorities and talk to the apostles. Now in that day, that would be the authority they could turn to. Now when we have concerns or maybe even disputes about the truth, what is our authority today? What is it? God's Word. You know, they didn't have, you know, the Galatians wasn't written yet. You know, they couldn't flip to Galatians chapter 1 and say, well, here's what it's, I mean, because Paul was going to write it, right? It wasn't written yet. They didn't have the completed revelation. And so when we go through concerns or struggles with our faith, just as they would go to the authority of the apostles, we go to the authority that God has given us, and it's the Word. That's why it's so important that we know what God's Word says. So they're going to go up and they're going to seek counsel. Look what it says in verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Now I love this. They're on their way to Jerusalem. 
But even though they're on their way to Jerusalem and they've got a major duty task in front of them, uh, uh, something of great concern to the entire church, especially the young guys back in Antioch, we'll find out if I've got to do this, right? These guys are on their way up there, and what are they doing along the way? They're encouraging the brethren. They're talking about the great things that God has done. And too often we're so focused on our destination that we miss out on ministry along the way. And they're along the way and they're like, hey, man, man, God's doing great stuff. You ought to see what God's doing with the Gentiles. And man, it's incredible. And the lame man was healed. And, you know, oh, man, the people, and, and we got stoned at Lystra, but it was awesome, man. It rocked, right? I mean, and, and I got up and went back in the city. And, and, you know, they're sharing the love of God. And I love what it says there. It brought joy to all the brethren. And I see such a contrast here. Legalism brings bondage, but the gospel of grace brings joy. Amen? Legalism pours a heavy duty. Oh man, I can't do it. I can't be good enough. And people just walk around just in their guilt all the time. But the gospel of grace brings great joy to the brethren. May we be those who bring great joy wherever we go. You know, some bring joy wherever they go and some bring joy when, whenever they go, right? You know, and, and God, may we be people that just love people and share with them the gospel of grace and bring joy, bring the gospel, bring the good news to people that Jesus loves them. Too often we're, we're promoting something other than that. And it's, man, it's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. That's what it's all about. He's a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. If you'll confess Him as your Savior, if you ask Him to forgive you for your sin, you have the promise of heaven. Not because you're good enough, not because you keep the rules, but because of God's grace. Verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. So they get back to Jerusalem, they tell them all about what had happened, and they specifically talk about this dispute. Hey, the Judaizers showed up in Antioch. They said that we must be circumcised to be saved. They said we've got to keep the law of Moses. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus plus Moses. It's Jesus plus the law, and then we can be saved. Verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to commit them to keep the law of of Moses. Now the Pharisees were the religious sect, the most religious people of the day. Paul was a Pharisee. They were the ones that wore the black robes and kept the rules and they were the ones that were elevated highly by the Jews and they were the ones that they sought counsel from. And these guys had had great authority prior to the cross and now they're stepping up and saying it's not enough. It's not enough. And it's hard. It can be very difficult when someone in authority steps up and commands that you do something to get God's grace. We need to be careful. Don't elevate the words of men above the word of God. Amen? When you start doing that, you get in trouble because you say, oh, but but so-and-so said. I don't care what so-and-so said. What does the Bible say? Amen? It's God's word. And so... They were holding on to the law, both the moral law and the ritual law. You, and, and I assume this means you've got to keep making sacrifices. You're going to be dragging the lambs in and, you know, slitting throats and shedding their blood. And, but wait a minute. When Jesus died, what happened to the veil? It was rent in two. It was torn from top to bottom, which means that anyone can enter in anywhere at any time. And what these guys were doing, in a sense, is they were sewing the veil back up. 
They were saying, well, wait a minute, we've we got to get some, hey, get some thread in here and let's sew this thing back up because we've got to continue to keep the sacrifices and keep the law, not realizing that all of it was pointing to one thing, to Jesus Christ. And he didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And he had fulfilled the law. And that's all they needed for salvation. But they said it's necessary. Now understand, the Pharisees had 613 commandments. 613. You know, how are you guys doing with the 10? You keeping all those? Imagine adding 603 more to the list, right? How do you think you'd be doing? You'd just be, oh, that's 411. I just blew 515. You'd just be walking around. Oh, man. And it would just be such a heavy burden on you. I remember meeting a Jewish man one time when I was still selling advertising, and he saw my, my Christian fish on the back of my car, and he came out, and he oh, you're one of those Christians. Uh, yes, I am. He said, well, I'm a Jew. And he said, it's very difficult to be a Jew. He said, we have 613 laws we must keep. I go, difficult? That's impossible. I said, how's that working out for you? How are you doing on those? Oh, it's very difficult. I said, no, it's not. It's impossible, man. You can't do it. I go, how do you get to heaven? Well, I'm hoping that maybe I can. Isn't that sad? Isn't that, just, isn't that break your heart? It breaks my heart to think that people are striving. Salvation is not do, 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 do. Salvation is done. Amen? It's not we try, try. It's done. It's finished. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Aren't you so glad that it's not based on how good you can be? We're new creations in Christ. Our life will produce good fruit, but we don't have to keep the law. Now, there's the dispute. Now we're going to see the response of the apostles. We're first going to see the response of, of the apostles themselves and then with Peter and then Paul and Barnabas are going to respond. And then finally the, the head of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, is going to give counsel as well about whether or not they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. You've got to do other stuff. Jesus isn't sufficient. Let's see what the apostles have to say. How are they going to respond? Verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now this is a little bit different Peter, isn't it? Back in the day, Peter wouldn't have listened to anybody say anything. It says, after much disputing, Peter's sitting there and he's listening. And finally, led by the Holy Spirit, he stands up and responds. Back in the day, Peter probably would have got a sword out and lopped off the heads of the Pharisees and said, you guys, no, you don't get it. You know, I mean, that's, that was Peter, right? Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim. You know, Mr. Speak first and then think later. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, look at the difference in Peter. He sits and he listens to the dispute. Then led by the Holy Spirit, he's going to stand up and he's going to give them four things that God has done with the Gentiles that prove that he's already working in them apart from the law. The first thing is that God called Peter to go to the Gentiles. Back in Genesis, or Genesis Acts chapter 10, he sent, them, he sent him with the vision up to Cornelius. And what happened there? He shared the gospel with them. And so that was the first thing that he told them to do. He sent them to their home. Verse 8. So God who knows the heart acknowledges them by giving them what? What does it say there? The Holy Spirit as he did for us. So the second thing that happened was he sent Peter to speak to the Gentiles. And then once Peter got there, he shared the word and the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles. Now the Holy Spirit only comes upon who? Those who are what? Saved. 
You cannot have the Holy Spirit living inside of you if you're not born again. But now the Holy Spirit is upon them, and how did the Holy Spirit come? By them going out and doing a bunch of good works? Does it say they went out and knocked on doors for 57 hours and crawled on their knees to Mecca over glass, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them? Does it say they went out and, you know, fed? The, and again, some of these things are good things. We should go share our faith, and we should, but don't make it that I've got to do this so then God will love me. I do this because God loves me, and because He's done this work in my life. Because of His grace, I desire to serve Him. I don't serve Him so He will love me. Two totally different ways of looking at our God. And so it says in Acts chapter 10, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the Word. The Word of God came and they believed and the Holy Spirit came upon them, not because of works, but because of God's Word and faith in Him. Didn't receive the Spirit by keeping the law, but by hearing the Word of God and believing it. Verse 8, or verse 9. And it says, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by what? What does it say? By good works? By trying really hard? By faith. By faith. By believing that Jesus Christ is God. Faith alone saves us. Faith in Him. Faith will produce good works, but it's not good works that save us. God broke down the wall between the Jews and Gentiles. There was a center wall in the synagogue and the, the Gentiles had to be in the outer court or outer portion and the, only the Jews could draw in closer to God. But when that veil was torn, that wall in its spiritual sense was broken down and now the Jews and Gentiles were the same. Jesus, it says there now, is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We're all one. It doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter. None of that's relevant. What's relevant is, where are you at with Jesus Christ? You're either for me, or you're against me. The Bible says that for God so loved the what? The world. For God so loved all of us that He gave His only begotten Son. It doesn't say for God so loved the elect. It doesn't say for God so loved the Jews. It doesn't say for God so loved those who work really hard and, and crawled on, on glass to Mecca. It says for God so loved the world. That's the God that we serve a God of grace. And they were purified by faith, not by their bloodline, not by good works. It says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know what? If you think your faith is based on works, you can be very arrogant about the works that you do. And you see that. You see people, well, I did all this for God. And I did this. And oh man, you know, can I tell you something? That anything that God uses you to do, He alone should be glorified for it because all the ability to do it came from Him. Amen? Anybody you share your faith, they get saved, who gets glorified? Him. And even in, even in, we got to be careful. We can allow ourselves to get puffed up. You know, I can be gifted in a certain way and I can allow that to go to my head. Oh, I really blessed your people with that message this morning. That was really sweet, you know. And we can make that mistake. Oh man, that guitar, I was really ripping this morning on the bass, man. That was, I was all over it, right? I mean, and we can do that. We can somehow start to take credit for what God alone has done. The Bible says without Him we can do what? Nothing. And in the original language, nothing means nothing. You can do nothing. 
So any good thing that happens comes from him, so him alone be all the glory. But sadly, what happens is if it's a works-based religion, then we start to get puffed up in our abilities. Man, look at, did you see how much, see all that I did? Man, look at me. And that's what sadly happens in the cults today. Do you know in, the, in most of the cults today that you're vying for positions in heaven? Because there's only a limited number. And so you're kind of, you know, so-and-so's sick, he's not going to be knocking on doors today. Oh, that's too bad. Sweet. I'm gonna, I got eight hours in today. He got nothing. Oh, man, that's got to be good for me. And you know what? And they're jockeying for position. And they're trying to see who can do the most works. You know what, guys? God just wants us to do it out of love for him and not worry if anybody ever sees what we do. Amen? We do it cause, just because we love him. And Lord, it's a get to and not a have to. Verses 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The fourth thing he told them was that, that God removed the yoke of the law and replaced it with grace. Could the, could the Jews keep the law? No. The Bible says that the law is a schoolmaster or a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. The law tells us we are sinners. The law is like a mirror. You put it up in front of your face, and when you look into the law, you realize, I've fallen short. I can't be good enough. I can't try. Now, when you look in the mirror in the morning and you got, you know, a blemish on your face, do you take the mirror off and rub your face with it? That's what the law, it's like taking the law and saying, okay, well, the law shows that I need to be cleansed, so now I'm going to try to cleanse myself by the law. It doesn't work that way. And he says, guys, you're, putting some, you're testing God by putting a yoke on them that you can't keep. You're, you're walking around with the black robes, the most religious people of the day, and you can't do it. And you're going to take that same yoke and throw it on top of somebody else. I'll tell you, you know what, I thought about this last night as I was studying. May we never place a yoke on other people that we can't even do ourselves. Amen? You know, we can do that. Even as Christians, we can, you know... We can make people feel guilty that, well, I'm in the Bible three hours a day. How long are you reading? Oh, really? Is that all? Okay. I'll pray for you, brother. Right? And we got this thing where, you know, we put this yoke on people, and we make, you know, we make them feel guilty about their walk with the Lord instead of encouraging them that it's through grace. He says there, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved. Thank you, Jesus. You've all heard this, more than likely. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Amen? We get God's riches by our good works? No. By our striving and struggling? By keeping the law? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's through grace that we have been saved. Salvation by faith. It's the gospel of grace. And I love what he says here. They shall be saved, and we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Man, I love the emphasis he puts here. He's talking to these Jews, and he says, we can be saved the same way as they. He doesn't say they can be saved the same way we can. He says, we can be saved the same way that they have been. He doesn't elevate the Jews even above the Gentiles in any way. He says, hey, the gospel's for everyone, and we can be saved just the same way that they have been saved. Puts the focus on them. So God had sent Peter to the Gentiles. He had given them the Holy Spirit. He had broken down division, and he had removed the yoke of the law. Can I tell you something real quick, just a side note? 
Legalism leads to rebellion. But love leads to a changed life. I used to share this with youth, and I'll share it with you guys. You know, I use this analogy that imagine someone decides they really want to serve God with their whole heart, but they've heard from somebody that, you know, if you're really a spiritual, you should get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and read your Bible for two hours. And the guy says, oh, is that what I'm supposed to do to get close? Okay, I'll do it. And you know what you have? Maybe the second or third day, you got a guy drooling in his Bible at 4.15, right? <clears throat> right? Because he's doing it out of bondage and out of legalism. You know, he's doing it because he's coming to put a yoke on him. You've got to do this, and then you'll be spiritual. Now, that same guy, imagine if he's in college and he meets this beautiful girl, the most beautiful girl he's ever seen in his life, and he falls madly in love with her. And because they both have jobs, they both go to school, they find out that the only time they can meet is at 4 o'clock in the morning and have coffee. That same guy gets up at 2.30, takes a shower, waxes his car, buys flowers the night before, right? Goes by and gets her favorite mocha at Starbucks, right? And shows up with all that in his hand, man, hair's, oh, ready to roll. Right, because he's doing it out of love, not out of bondage. He's doing it because he wants to. It's such a joy and such a get-to. Now, I want to encourage you. The Bible says to meet the Lord early in the morning, and I love to start my day with Him, but I should not do it because I feel like I have to to somehow be spiritual, but because I love Him. Can you see the difference? Getting up early because, Lord, I just love you so much and I can't wait to hang out with you this morning. That's different than somebody told me, if I want to be spiritual, i got to do this. Not going to last very long trying to do things in the ability of the flesh. May we be motivated by love and not by the law. Verse 12. So first we saw, we saw Peter step up and give four reasons why it's so clearly as God had shown him pouring out a spirit upon the Gentiles. Verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent. So Peter's word kind of shut him down. These guys were disputing and arguing, and it's hard to argue with God's word. You can be in rebellion against it, but you can't argue with it. But we believe, it says there, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So we see the fruit of the gospel of grace. Paul and Barnabas shared all that God had done. As they'd gone out on that first missionary journey, all the people that had gotten saved. And notice they got saved, why? Because of the word. And the gospel they were preaching was not a gospel of works, but it was a gospel of grace. They were sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ. And God had confirmed their ministry by allowing them to do signs and wonders. They had healed the lame man. And they'd done other miracles. And people were drawn to the truth. And all they were preaching to them was Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Nothing more. Didn't say you've got to become Jews. You've got to do the works. There was fruit. And that's proof that God was in it. And then lastly, let's take a look at James, the brother of Jesus. And We'll see God's grace toward the Gentiles in fulfillment of Scripture. Now this is James, and I love this because James is the one who wrote the book of James, and he's the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, obviously. Same mom, different dad, right? Now, here's the reality. James, it says in God's Word, did not get saved until after... Well, it doesn't say in his Word, but it says in tradition, and we know from his Word that earlier that he was disputing with his own brother. Remember when they came and thought he was crazy? They told Jesus to come on home, and the crowds were gathering in on him, and, you know, and Jesus sent him away and said, who's my mother and who's my brother, right? And 
James doesn't really give his life to the Lord until after the resurrection. He had grown up around the Lord, but did not give his life to the Lord. But now look at the difference in this guy. It's been about 20 years since Pentecost at this point. And look at James. He's now the head of the church in Jerusalem, and he speaks to him. And look at his knowledge of the Word. It says there in verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the, at the first visited the Gentiles to take them out, take out of them a people for his name. So first he says Simon, and he uses Peter's, his Hebrew name Simon because he's speaking to the Jews, to the Pharisees, and he knows his audience. And he says God will take out of them a people for his name, a people who will call upon his name and have fellowship with him, and people who will be called by his name to represent him to the world. And he says out of the Gentiles God has called people by his name. Because there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Amen? We stand on the name. Fellowship with, because of the name. Alright? Rock, our rock is the name. It's Jesus Christ. Verse 15. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now James takes them to the Word to show them that salvation of the Gentiles not only was confirmed by the outpouring of the Spirit, not only because of the vision that Peter was given to go to the Gentiles, not only because of the salvation of the many people that had been saved, not just because of the signs and wonders, but it was actually prophesied in the Word of God. He quotes from Amos. And in Amos chapter 9, Amos, this is a prophetic book talking about the impending judgment that was to come upon Israel because of their rebellion. And as he's speaking, he says, but you know what? God is still going to raise up from the tabernacle of David one who is going to reach the Gentiles, for even the Gentiles will be called by my name. So in the midst of judgment, he's talking about a future, something in the future that was going to happen. Now, a tabernacle is a temporary dwelling place. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, we've been looking at that, right? He's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Who is the son of David? Jesus, the Messiah. He's going to raise up the temporary dwelling place, the tabernacle of David, the son of David, and through him, what does it say in verse 17? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Through Jesus, the son of David, the one sent by God, they were going to have an opportunity to know the Lord. Now, understand too, this has fulfillment in end times as well. Amos chapter 9 points to the end times as well. But here I believe specifically in the context, he's speaking about the fact that God was going to raise up this tabernacle of David that would allow all others outside of Judaism an opportunity to come to know the Lord. I believe that speaks clearly of Jesus Christ. He's sharing with them that their belief in Him is also the fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all His works. This should answer a whole lot of questions you might have about God. Can I tell you something? There are some things God can't do. Did you know that? God can't sin. He can't lie. He can't deny Himself. You know what else? He can't learn. Did you know that? Because He knows everything. There's nothing left for him to learn. God is omniscient, omniscience, all-knowing. That's our God. Amen? He knows everything. 
Did he know what was going to happen? Did he know that they were not going to be able to keep the law? Did he know there was going to be a need for the Savior? Did he know that he was going to come, send his son to suffer and die, that we might have eternal life? Did he know that the Gentiles were going to come to know him through the work of the cross? Of course he did. And he's saying to them, the Old Testament bears witness that God already knew that this was going to happen. And this is all a part of his perfect plan. And salvation is by faith, and it's through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm glad that God knows what's going on. How about you? Amen? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that, you know, sometimes I look around and go, man, this world is a wreck. It's a man, this place is a mess. And then I say, God's in control. Thank you, Jesus. You know, they can't vote God out of office. Aren't you glad? God will always be God no matter what. He's God. And I'll tell you, I have peace in knowing that my God is faithful and that my God is in control. There's no fear for those in Christ Jesus because we know that He's in control of everything. Verse 19. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Guys, don't be pouring that yoke on them. Don't be giving them that bondage of the law. We should not trouble them with things that were fulfilled in Christ. Don't sew up the veil. Don't give them burdens that you, alone, that you couldn't even keep when you tried your hardest. Guys, it's Jesus. Don't put that bondage upon them. Verse 20. But that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Now you might think, why did, why? he tells them it's grace, but then he gives them these examples of things that they should steer clear of. Let me tell you why. I believe this is also grace, because now the church is not going to be just Jews, right? They're going to have a great number of Gentiles with them, and the Jews have been brought up with dietary rules. And it's just like it says later, you know, if your brother doesn't eat meat, and you do, don't eat meat in front of him and stumble your brother. Is it worth, you know, losing a brother over meat? Is it worth losing a brother over things that, that are, are, are not essentials to the gospel? But all of these things really relate to idol worship, what the Gentiles were heavily duty into before coming to know Christ. Idol worship was rampant. And he says to them, tell them to stay away from idols. Things polluted by idols. Things sacrificed to idols. Lest the Jews would think they haven't given up their idolatry. Stay away from sexual immorality. For when the Gentiles, again, understand that along with idol worship, quite frequently came this immorality you know, temple prostitutes and all this garbage that went along with it. And he said, you know what? You've left that life and you leave all that goes with it. All that idolatry that you followed before, leave it behind. Don't, don't pattern yourself after that anymore. And can I just say this too? Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Amen? He says, flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality. Too often as Christians... Can't, now, this is going to sound like Pastor Davis. Now he's swinging the other way again. But here's the thing. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Amen? It's by grace that we're saved. We don't earn our salvation. But since we've been saved, it's God's desire out of His love for us that we should walk in holiness with Him. And I'll tell you, I believe it's an epidemic in the church. It breaks my heart. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, most of you know. And it used to break my heart how many young people in my youth group were sleeping around. They've been taught the truth, but there's, you know, the world tells you, oh man, it's okay, and you know, you got to test drive the car before you buy it, right? What a bunch of noise, right? 
And, and all these things that are told to compromise our faith, and it's okay for us to look at those things. It's okay to put my eyes on that stuff. We need to flee that stuff, amen? And it just brings damage. And it's not because God's a no-fun, bummer God. I don't want you having any fun. That's not our God. It's because it's not forbidden, okay? It's not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad, because it will bring harm. It will bring harm to your marriage. It will bring harm to your relationship with God. Again, we're under grace. We're forgiven. But we are to flee that stuff because it has consequences in our life. It doesn't keep us out of heaven, but it has consequences in our lives. It also says things strangled and from blood because, again, when they, with kosher meals, even now, they pour all the blood out of the animal. I believe a picture of the fact that the blood was poured out by our Savior upon the cross, right? That's what they did with the animals. And it's saying, don't eat the blood because the life is in the blood. And so he's telling them, if you eat the the meat with the blood in it, you're going to stumble your Jewish brother who's been taught that his entire life. So the Jews were not to put the bondage of the law upon the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were not to stumble their Jewish brothers by abiding in things that would stumble them in the way that they ate and the things that they did. Okay? So the Gentiles were abstained in obedience to God. Again, it's still the gospel of grace. Verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the every Sabbath. These items were given to the Gentiles who were ignorant to the law of Moses, but the Jews had already been given instruction. They had already heard the law of Moses. Hey, don't we still study the law of Moses today? What's the answer? Yeah, come on Wednesday night. We're in the book of Numbers. Is the law of Moses still have application for us? Yes. Can we still learn things from seeing what God wrote in His Word 3,500 years ago and speaking to Israel? Absolutely. But, Is it that law that saves us? No. It gives instruction to our lives. It gives direction to our lives. It helps us to better understand the God that we serve. But it's not what saves us. It's not that yoke of bondage, okay, that's being placed upon us. May we live lives filled with joy, not under the yoke of burdens and bondage. And so we see there. Now, I want to say this, too. When, When they were in the wilderness, this is kind of a, all right, a little taste of Wednesday night here. I think I'm going to stop right here. But what happened when Moses brought them to the wilderness? How many years were they in the wilderness? Forty. It was an 11-day trip, and it took them 40 years to get there. Okay? Why? Disobedience. And the same thing can happen to us. God wants to do something with us, and we wander around for 40 years in the wilderness, right? And that's what they did. Now, it's interesting that Moses, a picture of the law... He did something that kept him from entering into the land of promise. Who remembers? What did he do? What did he do? He smote the rock. Remember that? Remember the Lord said, speak to the rock? He already struck it once, and out of anger, he took his rod and he smote the rock. And who's the rock? Jesus. He was told to smite it the first time, again, a picture of the cross. But the second time, we're not to smote him again. And because of that, he was not able to enter into the land of promise. So who was it that took that generation, that next generation into the land of promise. Who was it? Joshua. So Moses, a picture of the law, could not bring them into that land flowing with milk and honey, but Joshua brought them in. Joshua, the name in Hebrew, is what name in Greek? It's Jesus. So the law could not bring them into the land of milk and honey, could not bring them into that land of promise. Only Jesus can. Amen? 
The law can't do it. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't strive so much that somehow God will love you. I want you to know, no matter what you've done, He loves you right now. You don't have to quit smoking so then you can serve God. You don't have to quit drinking or quit this or, you know, I've got I to gotta get my language in order. You know, I, I've got to get rid of that bad habit. I've got to stop being angry all the time. You want to stop being angry? You want to stop, uh, you know, striving with, with alcohol and drugs? Do you want to know what will transform you? The Lord. You give your life to Him, and it's amazing how your language will change. The Bible says out of the overflowing of man's heart, his mouth speaks. And what happens is we got to be changed from the inside out, not the outside in. Legalism says you change so that God can live within you. And grace says you let God within you that you might change. Amen? So I want to encourage you. I got halfway through the text today. Oh, well. We'll get to the next, next. That's the good thing about teaching through the Word. We can pick up right there next week. But I just want to encourage you. If you're here this morning and maybe you've grown up with the law being put on you in a heavy way, I want you to know that He's a God who loves you. That Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. You don't have to keep a bunch of rules. You're not joining a club that takes 12 steps. It's a one-step program. Amen? It's Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. He loves you so very much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And we thank you that you have forgiven us for our sins. And we thank you, Lord, that it's it's not how hard we try or how much we strive or what great works we do. But, Lord, we thank you that, that you love us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in the knowledge of your grace, to know that we are forgiven. But, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't live lives with cheap grace, just taking it for granted. But Lord, as you have touched us, that we would live lives transformed by the knowledge of your grace and your love. And Lord, I pray if there's even one person here that doesn't know you, or Lord, somebody who's here has been trying to be good enough to earn your favor, that Father, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just open their eyes to your love for them, your unconditional love for them, Lord, you, you the one that knows us best and you love us most, and that blows me away. Father, you know every wicked, vile thing we've ever done, and you love us anyway. What a great and awesome God you are. You know, with every head bowed, I, and I do this because I, Christians, if you know the Lord already, pray for anybody here who might not. Just pray that God would just minister to their hearts. If you're here this morning, and, and maybe, you know, you came here, somebody invited you, or maybe even you think you've been a Christian and you're walking with the Lord, but this morning the gospel of grace has touched your heart. And you want to walk out of here knowing that you for sure are a Christian, that you've been born again, that you're going to heaven. It's really simple. You simply just say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you're God. I confess that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. And the Bible says that he will forgive you, that all the angels in heaven will rejoice, that you'll be a new creation in Christ. And the Bible says, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And so I'm just going to pray a simple prayer with you if that's your desire this morning. But I'm going to ask you to do something. Just... If God's ministered to your heart, I just want you to raise your hand and say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to accept this gospel of grace. Is there anybody here at all? Don't leave here without Him. He loves you so very much. Is there anyone? We thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Lord, for your grace. Help us, Lord, that that the grace that you've given us, that we would show that same grace towards others. 
Lord, and we would love people the way that you love us in an unconditional way. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.